to stand for the reading of the gospel lesson. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. John. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. And then Peter and the other disciples set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. And then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in. And he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And then the disciples returned to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting there the, where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away. Tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not hold on to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brother's and say to them, I am ascending to the Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever, the gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. After I got out of seminary, I had a position at a beautiful downtown church, Appalachia, 
paid me a good salary, setting me up in the parsonage, which of course, as I've mentioned, it was across the street from the country club. I figured I was definitely off on the right foot, at least by my earnest expectations of vocational success. I had two suits at that point, uh, both of which I'd gotten from a guy who died. <clears throat> he was from one of my friend's student churches. And my friend said, we got some extra old suits here. Do you want them? And I said, yeah, I don't have one. So I had them both dry clean, bought a couple of nice shirts, had them pressed. Susan bought me a really nice Waterman pen as a congratulations gift. New business cards, new office furniture. I was pretty sure I was Milburn Drysdale. <laughs> the Sunday I got there, <clears throat> they had a potluck afterwards, and I met a petite 93-year-old woman named Lucille Scott. Everybody just called her Scotty. And Scotty came up to me at the potluck, and apropos of nothing, she gave me a big kiss, just right out of nowhere, right on the lips. She pulled my head right down. She was about 98 pounds and four foot nothing. She, she wore this floral shift, uh, print shift that uh, she'd likely had since the Beatles made their big splash on the Ed Sullivan show. She had on those sort of old cat glasses, um, had the bottle, sort of bottle, uh, Coke bottle lenses, you know, ones I'm talking about, the old cataract glasses. You don't really see them anymore. But it made her eyes look really enormous. Uh, especially when she smiled kind of Sybil Trelawney-like, right? Um, and she smiled a lot. Scotty said to me that day, she said, I want you to come out to my house this Friday. And I said, well, okay, all right, of course. And I did. Now, she was near blind and deaf, but she liked to talk. Lord, that woman liked to talk. Talked about her family. She talked about the food that she liked. She talked about her flowers. And she called them uh, Nicodemus flowers because they only bloomed at nighttime. She told me about growing up in a mining camp and what it was like before electricity and indoor plumbing and how they had to do all their shopping at the company store that was owned by the coal mine. And all of the goods were paid for with company script not with dollars, which ensured that all that, uh, she couldn't spend it outside the camp and that all of that uh, nice coal money could stay right there in the owner's hands. I went to her house every Friday afternoon. They didn't say much. There really wasn't much required of me uh, to hold up a conversation. Uh, I just was there to listen so that she could tell her stories. And every time I'd get ready to leave, she'd give me that big old kiss. She was really, really something. Um, and about a year and a half after I got there, she died. And it was sad. But I mean, she was 94 years old. I mean, nobody was shocked. 
And so I put on the better of my two suits and I buried Scotty on a hot August day. But I missed her. I didn't have a whole lot of time. I mean, new jobs, a lot of responsibilities. I had two suits. I had a fancy pen. But as I was sitting in my nice new office thinking about Scotty one day, some time after she died, I'd stopped doing something important. I don't remember what it was now, but I remember thinking about her sort of wrinkled face and the bony finger that she waved in front of her when she spoke, and I remembered the Nicodemus flowers and her big eyes and her smile and that kiss. And it suddenly sort of dawned on me. This job isn't about suits and pens and business cards. I'm not really anybody special because of those things. I didn't hit the vocational jackpot, which allows me to walk around like an important guy who plays golf at the country club on Thursdays and gets free dry cleaning down at Sharp's Dry Cleaners. I thought, you know, the job here really, the job isn't the job. The job is Scotty. It's people like her. Did you ever have that epiphany? That the thing isn't the thing, the thing is something else like entirely? As I pass through middle age, I've discovered a secret about myself. And if I'm honest, I guess I'm stretching the limits of middle age. I mean, how many 114-year-old people have you met, right? Anyway, as I've settled into my dotage, I've discovered something disturbing about myself. I used to make fun of these geezers who've got nothing more to do than collect bad habits, but now apparently I am one of those guys. And at first it was, it was just a sort of convenience thing. I, I needed a little extra help to get through the day. But then I'd be sitting there stressing out about how much I have to do and I'd feel that urge sort of coming on and I'd think, man, I gotta get me some or I'm gonna go nuts with all the pressure. So this is my sad tale. I'm just gonna be honest. I don't, I don't think there's anything to be gained by trying to hide it anymore. I am a pen and journal guy. Okay, there, I, I, I said it. I have boxes of pens and a box of blank journals. I mean, sure, I could make it through the day with a Bic and some college-ruled paper, but I mean, come on, what are we, animals? I love the feel of a good fountain pen, the, the precision of a 0.38 millimeter Japanese rollerball scratching across the finely lined pages of a moleskin. Ah, the heart just soars thinking about it. But you know, every time I use them, I have to start with a pen in hand and a blank page. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that obsessing over the tools of work is an excellent substitute for, you know, actually working. I mean, thinking about work, preparing yourself to work, getting all the tools ready for work, having committee meetings about work, that's all important stuff. But the most important question remains. So now that that's done, what do I do? What's the obvious answer? 
I mean, the one that usually takes so long to dawn on me, get back to work, right? Do the work. I mean, it's so easy to think that something besides the work is the work. But fiddling's not the work. Adjusting's not the work. Setting up is not the work. The work is the work. You buy the right equipment, the right suit, the right pen, the right computer, but not as an end in itself, but so that you can finally get back to work. Well, those things are tools to get important work done. They're not the point. The work is the point. Have I made myself unutterably, tediously clear? Okay. Now, see, that's what struck me as I was reading through the Gospel of John this week, getting ready for Easter. This is the holiest day of the Christian year, right? You got angels, you got panicky disciples, a distraught Mary Magdalene. This is pretty big stuff. But the thing that jumped up and kind of smacked me in the face as I was thinking about all this big stuff was that thing that's just sitting right there in the middle of the story. It's the empty tomb. Uh, that looms pretty large in the world of Christian symbolism, doesn't it? I mean, somebody starts talking about the cross, and, well, you can be pretty certain that soon the empty tomb is, uh, is going to make an appearance. And, I mean, why not? The empty tomb stands as a kind of placeholder for the most, uh, excuse me, the more abstract concept of resurrection. There's a lot of tension on that, isn't there? Resurrection, the empty tomb, Christianity has a lot of writing on those things. But then, you know, I got to thinking, all the trumpets and the lilies and the loud exp uh, exclamations of the victory over death and the up from the grave, you rose stuff. I mean, that's, that's flashy. But after all of that's said and done, there's still this empty tomb. which everything else set aside for a moment, still just kind of sits there, doesn't it? Empty, I mean. I, I, I know that we use the empty tomb as a symbol, uh, as a signifier, but our symbol may be doing more work than we, than we know. We, we, we look at the empty tomb and it's so easy to think that the critical work has already been done. God tapped Jesus on the shoulder on Easter Sunday morning a couple thousand years ago, and bam, everything's changed. Jesus rose, the disciples breathe a sigh of relief, we sing the songs, smell the flowers, and we think, I wonder if the ham's going to be finished cooking by the time the grandkids show up. I mean, it's nice. Easter gets draped in bunnies and pastels, you know, all of that, because the empty tomb. But you see... That may be just a bit too easy. The way Easter often gets celebrated, it's easy to think that the empty is the work, that the missing body is the point. But the empty tomb is just that. It's just empty. It doesn't mean anything if there's not a gardener standing outside waiting to be recognized. If Mary stays pondering the empty tomb... She'll never get outside and hear the voice of God and the voice of the guy tending the begonias, which is so often where God shows up. 
See, the resurrection is central, of course, but when we say that, we have to know that we're also saying that Jesus didn't stick around and make a shrine out of the empty tomb. He didn't stick around to bask in the glory of his victory, shuffled out of his jammies, and got to work. And when they showed up on the scene, the disciples went in, they looked around, they saw some linens on the floor, and they took off. Mary, when she found out what had happened, she didn't pitch a tent and say, empty tomb, that's all I need. I think I'll stick around here and try to invite people to come in and hang out in this sacred place. I mean, we can have designer coffee and some donuts from Krispy Kreme. We could put people in charge of dusting the stone out front, make sure it gets weed-eated regularly. We can, we can put, give people name tags for the regulars and set up committees to ensure that nobody messes up the tomb anymore. There's plenty of room for parking. It's, it's going to be brilliant. This is great. No, I, the minute that Mary sees the emptiness, she starts looking for explanations. And before she gets two steps into her journey, she runs smack dab into Jesus. But see, notice where Jesus is. He's outside. Mary doesn't find him until she looks away from the empty tomb. The emphasis in John's gospel seems less to be on what happened than on what happens next. What does the resurrection mean? Well, if it means anything, it certainly means God's cosmic yes to Jesus and to the reign of peace and justice that he fought and died for and God's no to the systems of domination and death that killed Jesus for challenging the powerful by seeking to center the needs of the most vulnerable. But you see, the question to us is, all right, now that we've been handed this beautifully wrapped box of resurrection, what are we going to do with it? We're going to hang out with it, thinking that all the work's been done 2,000 years ago? Or are we going to realize that the freedom the resurrection brings us is the freedom to back out of the tomb, turn around, go out into the garden, and get back to work. You see, it's not that the resurrection isn't cause for celebration. It is. The problem is that we've, I think, often misunderstood celebration. We thought that it meant maybe a release from duty, a time to set down our work and head to the party, but the story of the gospel is that Resurrection doesn't free us from labor. It offers us labor worth giving our lives for. We find our greatest joy, our greatest expression of celebration in the work we're entrusted to do. Now, what work is that? Well, it's a continuation of the work that Jesus himself did. Healing the sick, feeding the hungry, setting free the captives, remembering the forgotten. See, true freedom for those who follow Jesus isn't about the right to refuse to bake gay wedding cakes. It isn't about making sure that nobody can tell me to wear a mask if I don't want to. It's not about making sure that America remains a Christian nation. And it certainly isn't about retaining the right to step on the necks of the undocumented or Muslims or people of color or LGBTQ people or anybody else who threatens our ability to say and do what we want without being challenged. True freedom, as we find it in Jesus, can never be about ever more elaborate ways to justify our selfishness, to say that we have responsibility only for ourselves and those that we care about. 
And everybody else? Oh well. That's not freedom. At least not in Jesus' mouth. True freedom for those who follow Jesus is being given the opportunity, no matter how much it costs, to love those whom Jesus loves. But the thing is, we have to leave the empty tomb in order to be able to do that. We remember it, we love it, but we see it as a place from which we are sent out into the world. Because that's where the sick and the hungry and the imprisoned are. That's where the work is and that's where Jesus is. Do you want to know what Easter is all about? Well, the most loving thing I can tell you is that you're going to have to get back to work to find out. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.